0: Good morning, I want to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel, and um, unfortunately our main folks that always come up with the brilliant questions are out sick today, but we're going to pick up the slack for them uh, and uh, open it up for questions. I've got a few questions that were sent to me by email, and as we have the opportunity we'll get into those, but uh, this is part 51, our 51st uh, week discussing what Lies Ahead, A Biblical Overview of uh, the End Times. And uh, so, but we've dedicated today, as we do about every eight or so weeks, uh, periodically throughout this series to just a QA. and a But before we get to that, just our usual announcements real uh, quickly. Uh, so I want to remind you that, well, let's see here. There we go. want to remind you uh, that the book that is kind of the overarching book uh, ser- uh, Outline of what we've been talking about is available at the back of the auditorium. Those of you online can go to notbyworks.org if you're interested in looking at that. Um, The Spirit of the Antichrist book, we've got more back there. I know we ran out last week that we brought more Wednesday, and so there's plenty. If you did not get one, uh, Not by Works Ministries is making those available to you for free. Uh, It's our way of saying thanks for just being such an awesome church and uh, just uh, what a blessing it is to partner with Plum Creek Chapel. And we feel like the synergy between the local church, which gives me a platform and accountability and friendship and all the things that the Bible talks about in the local church, along with our ministry that we've had for more than two decades now, Not Bet Works Ministries, is just phenomenal. And the Lord's using it uh, to advance the grace message, which is what it's all about. And we just appreciate it. And our family is so grateful to be a part of this church. So, for that reason, we made it available to you. Those of you that are watching by live stream or online, you can go to Spirit of the Antichrist. .org and check out uh, that book. Speaking of which, uh, we were on David Fiorazzo's show Monday, and if you're interested in listening to that uh, one-hour interview, really fascinating. David Fiorazzo does a fantastic job of uh, uh, you know, interviewing his guest, and he's been in our church, as you know. He's kind of a, a friend of Plum Creek Chapel and certainly a dear friend of mine. And so that uh, interview is posted at Not by Works as well. And then our usual Tuesday podcast on Christian Underground News Network this week dealt with part two of Sin, the Real Pandemic. And um, so, you know, oh, we weren't on the screen, were we? Oh, well, my fault. We are now. So now, you know, it's going to make me sound much better because I've got visual aids. Um, so anyway, that's uh, available at the Not by Works website as well. We talked this week on the Tuesday show about sin in the life of a Christian and why do Christians sin, and what's the remedy, and how does, the, how does this relate? If our sins have been forgiven, and we have been given eternal life, and been justified freely by the grace of God, what, how do you deal with sin? We still sin, and so that's what that was all about. All right, so a question and answer, and uh, we're basically opening the floor, and I'll repeat the questions. Try to speak loudly because it will pick up somewhat, especially in the front half here of the auditorium, on the microphone but I'll still try to repeat it so that those that are listening at home can hear it and it does not have to necessarily be about the end times one of the questions that was sent in is just a general theological question so it's pretty much wide open so Mike you start us off
1: well I have a pretty much wide open question. okay this comes from uh, this week we heard a couple stories from people we know about um, you know people's family backgrounds and how how um, uh, out of wedlock marriages, or not marriages, but out of wedlock births, had affected different people growing up. You know, and in, in particular, the scenario is um, there's an out of uh, wedlock birth, and the f- either the family or the religion the family is associated with is so anti against that that they will disown the the child and the child was given up to either a relative you know secretly or to some third party secretly to be raised (coughs) and how does that affect the child growing up especially when they find out that they're you know that they are not part of the family they grew up with we've heard several stories about that and I guess what I was gonna ask was, my understanding is, and I wanna make sure you can help me make sure I'm on the right interpretation, is that it depends, um, it really depends on the, the the state of your soul. Your salvation depends on whether you've accepted Jesus Christ sometime in your life or not. Um, so, from the parent's point of view, like the mom's point of view, if she was, if, she, if she'd already accepted Jesus, um, the family's reaction is beyond her control, obviously. But as far as as far as God is concerned, um, her her soul is saved. Um, the only con- cause sin does have consequence, and the consequence, as you've, you've explained, is that. You may not get such a prime job in in the heavenly architecture as you might have gotten, yeah. but you're still going to be there. Yeah. No matter what your family thinks or what what other religious connotation that is put on that <coughs> that that uh, situation. Yeah. Obviously, the mom, if she was saved, the child in is a obviously a completely different unit and needs to go through.
0: Needs to trust Christ himself. Yeah, sure. At some point, mm-hmm. But
1: this child is not uh, is, is blamed. I would think it would be, have to be considered blameless in that condition.
0: Yeah. And so a lot going on in that question, and I think since you're sitting pretty close to the front, the, the it picked up uh, it picked up what you were saying. But the gist of the question is, uh, what what? How do we deal with the fact that today the family unit is often not in in uh doesn't follow God's divine design and we have exceptions and we have sin and the ugliness and the all of this complexities of of life and and there are some families who uh legalistically reject maybe a child who you know uh had sex out of marriage and resulted in the birth of a child and those things so here's the, here's the answer to that question. We need to understand that God created man in His image with a divine design 6,000 years ago, and when sin entered the world through our own choice, when Adam and Eve chose the, the apple, so to speak, uh, it corrupted that image of God in man, and that corruption has been getting worse and worse, as 2 Timothy 3.13 tells us, over the last 6,000 years, so Today we live in a situation where it's very difficult, especially in our culture, uh, and frankly throughout the world, uh, to you know, have a quote-unquote quote normal godly divine design. God's divine design is one man, one woman, married for life, children raised under the uh, you know, leadership of their parents in the Lord, brought up in the Lord, and so forth but a lot's happened in 6000 years and so we see early on in the nation of Israel that God allowed certificates of divorce not because that was his divine design but because it was just a way to help regulate the sinfulness like all of the law frankly of mankind. I mean you have to deal with responses to to reality. God's man's reality is not always God's ideal. And so but that doesn't make it right. But the biggest picture that we need to understand is that God is always first and foremost a God of grace and so when our reality doesn't measure up to God's ideal God's grace abounds now we can't thumb our nose at God and continue to rebelliously walk against the Lord and continually do things again and again that are contrary to God's word and God's will then yeah there's going to be consequences absolutely like you said and uh, not only in eternity in terms of level of rewards but also the practical consequences here on earth. That's what we talked about Tuesday with the Curtis Chamberlain in the Christian Underground News Network. Um, but it would be wrong for us to look down upon anybody who doesn't fit the ideal. Maybe they've been married more than once. Maybe their kids were born out of wedlock in the example you gave. Uh, maybe they're you have a drug problem or something. There but by the grace of God go I. So we've got to always temper our biblical moral stand with grace. See, gr- sometimes people who who believe in the grace gospel, which I've been passionate about for 32 years of ministry, can be the most ungracious people, right? And what I and I used to be that way, and and sometimes still am. Old habits die hard, right? We can all tend to be um, harsh, but. But what I learned many years ago is that, you know, we, we've got to be gracious toward those with whom we disagree. And uh, I, may not, I may think they're wrong, and, and, and especially on important issues like the gospel, but I don't want to be personally attacking or judgmental. I want to just say they're wrong. And so, you know, we come across someone who is uh, maybe getting a divorce, you know, Christian couple. Ah, we just don't like each other anymore. We're not compatible anymore. That's wrong. They shouldn't do that. But that doesn't mean we're not gracious to them and say, "Look, you know, I don't think that's what God's will is, but hey, I'm here for you. Let me know how I can help. I'm praying for you." We don't shun them or I mean there are biblical uh, principles of separation, absolutely, and I've written about that and happy to provide those uh, th- those articles. I've got a couple of articles on that, or at least one. I think I finally conflated it into one 10-page article. But if someone is willfully, consistently, headstrong, continuing to live in you know, carnality, then yeah, we need to separate from them because that's what God's Word says. But if someone's going through a rough time and wrestling with certain things and truly seeking the Lord but just making some poor choices, we don't want to shun them and reject them. We want to come alongside them and help them and show grace. See, grace does not mean uh, condoning. right? You can be gracious to someone and not condone what they're doing. So I, uh, I, I get kind of emotional when the kind of thing you're describing happens because, you know, I know our journey, in my family's journey, I know other people's journey, and I look at Scripture and this concept of the perfect Christian family that was, everyone in the family was saved at age six, they were raised in the church, never missed a Sunday, had perfect attendance pins, you know, have you know, two cars, a dog, a white picket fence, and sing you know, kumbaya every night before bed and say the Lord's Supper before dinner. I mean, that does not exist, right? It just doesn't exist. And frankly, it never did exist. People often forget even Jesus was from, I don't want to say a broken home, but he, he had a stepfather, right? Okay? So we need to understand that that perfect family, that's God's ideal. But we've come a long way from that. doesn't make it right, but we need to do the best to walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh to live up to God's standard he gives us a road map and you know what when we when mistakes happen even if they're willful sinful actions that we chose you know sometimes when you say the word mistake people think it's like you you tripped over a crack in the sidewalk and you had no you know it wasn't your fault no i mean even if it's something we did willfully making a mistake god's grace is sufficient god can bring beautiful things out of broken things And God can use our own mistakes. Look at the nation of Israel as an example. Uh, You know, they again and again rebelled against Yahweh, against our creator God. And yet, God disciplined them and then made them stronger because of it. So, I would not say that uh, the typical knee-jerk reaction of judging and shunning people. um, You know, I had someone uh, reach out to me one time and they had gone through a divorce and They said, uh, so I guess I'm not welcome at the church anymore or something like that. And I said, absolutely, you're welcome. You know, we know your heart. Now, if you're out there carousing and getting drunk and causing an offense to Christ and, and causing an offense to our church reputation and all that, yeah, we might have to have a discussion, right? The leadership team or the pastor might come to you and say, you know what? You know, this is not the way we want Christ represented and, you know, either straighten up or take a break for a while right that's different and again the bible gives us regulating principles for those things but if, if if the church didn't allow sinners this place would be empty and so the same struggles that some people have that are outward and visible some people everyone in here is having struggles maybe it's jealousy or covetousness or uh, temper or um, lust or you know some of those hidden sins but we're all imperfect and it doesn't mean it's okay we can't be content with the way we are we should constantly be trying to conform to the image of christ follow the spirit not the flesh live like the child of the king that we are but um we don't want to uh shun people who are who are struggling and i think that based on the description that you gave i think that would be be wrong um,
1: i just had one more comment yeah i was i was thinking doesn't that make the good news all that much more good? Yes, it does. Because yeah. I, I, can, uh, as many years as I've gone and sat through church services growing up. Yeah. Um, I don't think I really got the good, the good news message any clearer than when you've been, you know, at this church here. Amen. And, well, it took uh, me a that long really time. Makes things come, to come yeah. together in your mind about yeah. understanding the hierarchy of you know of salvation maybe about how you know where do you stand and and uh it even makes you have a deeper appreciation of the of the grace of god amen um so yeah so
0: i want to look at a couple of verses but faith would you do me a huge favor would you grab me a bottle of water from the refrigerator i forgot to grab that and put it up here so Mike just made me so nervous my mouth was dry, and I just can't, I'm going to choke here in a minute. So I like the way you said, doesn't that make the good news that much better? So this is what most people miss about grace. Most people don't understand grace, you know. You ask them, what is grace? And they go, oh, it's, you know, something you say before a meal, or it's the way that, you know, dancer or skater or whatever gracefully did that performed their routine. You know, they don't really understand grace. Grace is freeness. Absolutely free. And in Romans 3.24, thank you very much. Um, it says we are justified freely by his grace. You see how they opened that for me? Because I can't open it with my hand. I was thinking better you no. said yeah, now you know what it's been like at our house last week. Every little thing. Could you open this for me? But, um, so, so Romans three twenty four. we are justified freely by His grace. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. And that makes people uncomfortable, but the Bible says it. That's not me saying it. That's Paul saying it. Or in Revelation 22, whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life freely, right? So that being the case, then there are people out there that don't understand grace that attack grace and they say that the kinds of positions that I've just been articulating cheapen grace. And they call it a cheap grace. That If, if all you have to do is believe the gospel, that's, that's cheap grace. You know? No, you've got to bring something to the table. You've got to surrender, commit, repent, be, you know, uh, turn your life over to, uh, make Him Lord of your life, put Him on the throne. You've got to do something that salvation is, is not just a free gift you accept. You've got to do something. And so therefore, because that's their erroneous understanding, they think that uh, simply accepting Christ alone for salvation cheapens grace. What they don't understand is that the more sinful someone is, the more powerful grace becomes, right? Listen to what Paul said in Romans uh, 5, uh, verse 20. Romans 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, what the law did when God instituted the law long after sin, by the way. That sin didn't come into existence when God gave Moses the law. Sin came into existence in the Garden of Eden. All the law did was it highlighted sin. It, it sort of gave us some pretty clear lines of demarcation to say, yep, this yeah, I blew it there. I mean, the sin is a matter of the heart, not the law. But he said... The, the law entered that the offense might abound. Watch this. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So, in other words, you cannot out-sin God's grace. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So if a you know serial murderer comes to the cross, recognizes his sinfulness, recognizes the penalty for that sin, and recognizes that only Jesus Christ can save him and places his faith in jesus christ and him alone for salvation grace covers it right there he receives the grace of god amen Mm -hmm. at the same time right beside him could come this 70 year old lady who lived a perfect life pretty much morally speaking never cussed never you know so much as stole a piece of bubble gum never said a harsh word was generally a good person but she never trusted Christ and she comes to the cross and she recognizes she's a sinner in need of a savior recognizes the penalty for her sin and trusts in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation guess what she's saved but grace you might say is more powerful more abundant for the guy that needed more of it right so so sin does not in any way cheapen grace it makes grace more valuable but We cannot earn our way into heaven. We've got to receive the free gift of God's grace. That's what you know, Romans 3.24 couldn't say it any clearer. We are justified freely by His grace. So you're exactly right. We need to understand that when someone is really struggling with some type of behavior or Mm -hmm. sinful activity, um, they may not be a believer, so they may need that initial grace of God. By grace through faith we're saved. Or they may be a believer who's, who's struggling with the flesh. And either way, they need grace. And, um, you know, if you are reaching out to a person in that condition, you'll be able to tell whether, they're, whether they've hardened their heart and have completely rejected any, you know, any uh, hope of trying to walk in the Spirit. They're really, you know, quenching the Spirit and resisting the Spirit. We're going to talk about resisting the Spirit in our worship hour today. And, and in that case, you just, you say, like uh, the writer of Hebrews did in Hebrews 6, you know, it's it's up to the Lord. It's God willing. I'm going to, I can't, I've done all I can do. I'm going to pray for him and leave it to the Spirit to break through. But, but most of the time, that's not the case. That's a rare case when someone so rebels against God that they fall away, or what the Bible calls apostatizing, right? So, you know, uh, most of the time we just need grace. I mean, grace truly does cover a multitude of sins, and we all experience it. There's not a person in this room who didn't, you know, rely on God's grace yesterday. <laughs> you know, let's face it, right? So I, I that's a long answer, but to be fair, it was a long question. It was. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, but uh, I just want you to know I get emotional about it uh, because, you know, it, we don't want to judge people, you know. It's okay to judge in the right context. Matthew 7 is not saying you should never judge. The Bible is full of encouragement for us to judge and evaluate people, but always with grace. Yes, Paul?
1: So that kind of leads me to James.
0: Faith without works is dead. Okay. Can you kind of... Yeah, so the comment is about, that brings to mind James 2.14, faith without works is dead. So... In the context, James is not talking about eternal salvation when he says, can faith save you? And in Greek, the required answer to that question is no. So here's what James says, and then I'll explain how that's not a contradiction with what the Bible says elsewhere. James says, faith alone absolutely cannot save you. You've got to have works. Now, does that sound like a problem? Yeah. But James is not talking about eternal salvation, that positional truth of our position with Christ. He's talking to a group of believers. He addresses them as brothers. He's talking to Christians, and he's talking about salvation from the temporal consequences of sin, the practical consequences of sin. And so save, the word save in Greek, in the New Testament, means deliver. And in fact, 58% of the time it's used, it means to deliver from... uh, sickness, injury, danger, some type of temporal negative circumstance. Only 42% does it mean deliver from the penalty of sin in meaning eternal life. So James has already in chapter 1 of his letter described his readers as being born from above in a beautiful language there. He calls them brothers and then he says, "But look, if you have faith, that'll get you to heaven, but you're living in carnality." By the way, it was pretty bad carnality that he was talking about in that chapter, in that letter, because some of them were even committing murders, he goes on to talk about later. I think it's in chapter 3. So, but he says, if you have faith, but you don't have works with it, it's not going to deliver you from the death-dealing consequences of sin, because in chapter 1, he used the word save also, and he said, look, um, if you are a hearer of the word and a doer, if you embrace the word of God, it will save, deliver you from the consequences of sin. So what James is saying is that essentially if you have two people, one we let's for the sake of the illustration, we know one's a believer, born again going to heaven. The other's not. If they were to die, they'd go to hell. And they both, let's say, do drugs or something, it's not like the believer is somehow immune to an overdose. Right? Sin is an equal opportunity killer. In James chapter one, he says, sin when it's full grown brings forth death. So what James is trying to do in chapter two is they saying, because sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death, I implore you, live out your faith. You know, the same way Abraham did. He uses Abraham as an example. Um, and live out your faith because that it will go well with you. You will be blessed and you will be avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. But contrary to what, you know, 90 out of 100 commentaries are going to say about James 2, he's not talking about eternal life. He's not saying that to get to heaven, you've got to have works nor is he saying to really prove that you're really going to heaven, you got to have works. That's the way most people take it. Because see, most people understand the overwhelmingly clear message of Scripture that we're not saved by works. I mean, uh, Titus 3.5, the theme verse of, of not by works ministries, it's not by works of righteousness which we do, but according to His mercy He saved us. Or Galatians, or I mean Ephesians two eight nine, for by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it's a gift of God, not by works, right? So most people understand that. So they come to James two and they say, Well, he must be talking about fake faith, or if you really are gonna if it's real faith that'll really get you to heaven, you gotta have good works to prove it. That's not what he's saying either. He's just saying, if you want to have if you want to be saved from the death dealing consequences and practical consequences of sin, live out your faith. Put you know, Live out your faith so that it produces practical righteousness. And the example that he uses, by the way, in that context in chapter 2 there, is that of f- seeing a, a destitute, poor, uh, naked person who's hungry, and if all you do is say, God bless you, is that really going to help them? Or you got to put some action with that and give them some food and clothing, and then it'll help them, right? In the same way, if you want to avoid the, the the consequences of sin, you got to you got to live it out. So, so basically, I would paraphrase James 2.14. Faith without works is useless. The word dead there means useless. Not for getting you to heaven, but for avoiding the death-dealing consequences of sin. So that's a very important passage, and sadly it's one that ever since the Reformation, people have used and abused, and, and they just missed the point entirely. And that's where comparing Scripture with Scripture becomes so important. The word faith. There's only one kind of faith. Faith just means the confidence or assurance in something. So James is just talking about faith, you know. And but he's not. But there are multiple meanings of save. Save can mean save eternally, save practically, save from danger, save meaning get well if you're sick, that kind of stuff. It's the it's the word pistuo, or no, that's believe. It's the word sozo, save. Right. So uh, James is talking about a different kind of save than what most people think. Uh, that passage was so troubling to Martin Luther in the Reformation days that he didn't think James was part of the Bible, which I respect. I mean, because rather than twist the meaning of it to conform with the rest of the Scripture, he recognized that that interpretation of it, that you got to do good works to be saved, is contrary to Scripture. So he said, oh, that must not be part of the Bible. Now, he was wrong, but he was consistent. And I think the only consistent way to handle that passage is to recognize that James is talking to Christians. He never once questions their eternal destiny, and he's saying that faith without works is useless. Faith alone cannot save you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. Make sense?
1: Yeah, it's still confusing.
0: Well, let's see what we can do. So, um,
1: so he, when, you're, when he's talking about uh, faith and works, he's not talking about faith or eternal self, life. Eternal life. Correct. He's some other uh, worldly uh, thing that uh, the appearance. Okay, I have faith, so show me, show me your faith. I'll show you my faith by showing you my word.
0: Well, not exactly. So he's he's talking about the same faith that Paul's talking about, the faith for eternal life. But he's saying that that faith. Here's the way I would paraphrase it: Faith alone will get you to heaven, but it won't save you. ...from the death-dealing consequences of sin. The whole thing hinges on what do you mean by save? So faith alone will get you to heaven... ...but it won't save you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. Elsewhere we see the word saved used of eternal life... ...such as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So faith alone will save you from the penalty of sin... ...eternal life... Give you, ...but faith alone won't save you from the consequences of sin on earth. Believers who sin will face consequences... All kinds. Discipline. I mean, we've talked about all kinds of consequences. As far as the part you alluded to a second ago about show me your faith, that's part of a hypothetical objector who is basically, you know, saying to James, and James takes on his voice, and he says, now some of you are thinking, you know, you can have faith without works, and there's no consequences. You know, a lot of people do it. And in fact, he says, look, the demons, you know, they have faith, and they don't do good works. Uh, you have faith and you do good do good works. See, that's what's the problem, James. And then James goes on to say, "Oh, fool! You, you know you're missing the point. No, there is a difference. There is a consequence if you don't have good works. So it's a it's an extended passage, James 2:14 to 26. And there's a lot of richness going on there. But fundamentally, it starts with understanding right out of the shoot in verse 14 that James is not talking about. In order to get to heaven, you've got to have good works. Faith alone will save you from the penalty of sin and give you eternal life, but it will not save you or deliver you from the consequences of sin on earth. So that hopefully that clarifies. But believe me, it took me, because it were so ingrained in the false understanding of that passage, which is that you got to do good works to prove you're really saved or your faith wasn't real, that's what most people think. It took me years to break free from that and I even after I was teaching it 30 years ago, you know, I'd always think, man, I'm, faith without works is dead. You know, faith without works dead, but does not say faith without works is non-existent, right? If you see a dead body, you don't go, well that was never a body, right? That was never a person. You would never do that. That's not what James say. he's not saying faith without works never existed. You never really trusted Christ. He's saying Faith without works is useless. It's in, ineffective in life, and uh, frankly, a lot of Christians are running around with dead faith. <laughs> they're going to be in heaven, but their faith is not vibrant in producing Christ-likeness and a spirit-filled life. They're just they're just dead, you know. So, anyway, I would just say uh, encourage you to kind of read through it and just study it for yourself. And uh, if you're interested, I'm happy to send you. I've got a 50-page Booklet that I put together on that passage—it uh, takes time to digest, you know, the passage. I mean, so yeah. So I'm going to switch the headsets and talk about um, Spirit of the
1: Antichrist, the book we just. Okay. Mentioned.
0: Yeah. And I think I, meant, I think I remember you saying there were seven parts, only one of which is in this first volume. That's right. Yeah. My curiosity, JB, is of the seven, which was most personally difficult. For so the question is, uh, in reference to the Spirit of the Antichrist book, uh, I mentioned at the beginning there that uh, there, there are seven manifestations of the Spirit of the Antichrist that I'm going to deal with in the two-volume set. This first book just deals with the first one, the Spirit of Pretense. And then I don't think I'll be able to remember them all off the top of my head, but it was things like the Spirit of Phenomena, the spirit of pride, the spirit of pluralism, the spirit of perversion. Um, Can you think of any others? There are are six others that we'll deal with in part two. Uh, So basically what I did, just to set the stage for my answer, is the Bible says the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us. If that's true, and of course it is because God's word says it is, what I did was I went and looked at all of the passages that describe the Antichrist who's going to reign in the future, wrote down every characteristic I could find of what he's going to be like during that seven year period. And then I sort of came up with the top seven most prevalent characteristics of the Antichrist. And I said, if these things characterize the Antichrist capital A in the future, and the Bible says his spirit is already at work today, it follows that we ought to see those characteristics today and we ought to see them increasing the closer we get to the end times. So then I set out to look lay that uh, template, of, say, like the spirit of perversion. Do we see an uptick in perversion? Absolutely. It's just everywhere we look, you know, the whole turning God's divine design on its head with gender and all that stuff. So uh, so your question was, of those seven, which one was most troubling or shocking? Troubling or? Yeah, well, I can tell you this. Last night I had a dream about, I really did, uh, about it was very vivid. It was one of those where you wake up when my alarm clock went off. And I don't usually wake up with my alarm clock. I wake up before it. Just for years, I've always woken up five minutes before my alarm goes off. My body's just conditioned that way. But this one, I woke up from this dead dream this morning. And uh, and it was about geoengineering and chemtrailing. And I was in the dream. I was in this class. It, it seemed like a college class or something. Uh, I wasn't the teacher. I was one of the students. And the teacher was up there giving a lecture about chemtrailing and geoengineering and all the stuff that they're spraying in the sky. And I was sitting back there thinking, I know all this and I've got all this information and I could be giving this lecture way better than this guy. And I was like <laughs> elbowing the guy next to me, you know, see me after class. You know, I'll, t- I'll give you the, re- you know, I, 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 yeah, this was resonating with me, you know. Anyway, then I woke up. Uh, so I don't know that that's the one that was the most troubling, although in putting together the book and kind of doing some more research and adding some more data in there, it really is amazing and startling how their depopulation effort is, a big part of it is that. Um, I I think the part that was most troubling to me, and that's why it's the longest chapter in, in the book anyway, now that's all part of the spirit of pretense in this book, ways that we're being deceived. You know, like for years they said, those aren't chemtrails, those are contrails. Well, finally, it was, you know, pretty obvious they weren't, so they came out and said, yeah, they're contrails, I mean, yeah, they're chemtrails, of course they are, that's what we've been spraying for decades, we're trying to solve global warming, you know, so that's what they always do, lie, 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 until they absolutely can't lie anymore, and then they say, well, of course that's what it is, We, wh- 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 where have you been? And we're like, well, we've been listening to you say it's not for the last 30 years, I don't know, but... Um, but in the book, the most startling one was clearly the vaccines and big pharma. And it just, obviously because of the pandemic and being exposed to all this stuff and realizing all the evils of the vaccine and pharmacaea, sorcery and all that. Of the spirits of the Antichrist that I deal with, um, I don't know, I mean pretense made itself into a whole book so obviously that's the one that i think sets the stage for all the others but it was pretty startling to me to see just how um pervasive the whole phenomenalistic aspect of the spirit of antichrist is today most people have their head in the sand they don't they're not paying attention to ufos uaps uh you know the stuff coming out of the sea the you know other uh, strange disappearances and other phenomena, the blue orbs and the demonic activity and the Nephilim. So the whole phenomena thing was something that I had studied for years and years, but it really, in in preparing for the series that we did, the video series on it, it really kind of came together. And it's like, Okay, it it exists. It's not what most people think at you all. Know. It's not little green Martians or aliens from another planet, but it's definitely an uptick in spiritual unseen activity. I mean, visible activity from the unseen realm. So that that probably be the one. Let me before we run out of time. Let me at least address one or two of these. Uh, uh, this one was an excellent question. The person says, uh, and this is from a listener from some other. Place They've never been to Plum Creek Chapel, but they've listened to us. D- during class, you mentioned that there could be a delay between the rapture of the church and the start of the tribulation. So let's put that chart up. Um, I have always been taught that God always has a representation on earth. That's true. During this age, he's talking about this time after the rapture. Do you see those two arrows on the left? And then in in sort of purple there, you see a preparation period. And then you see the start of the tribulation at the signing of the peace treaty. So he's talking about that unspecified gap between the rapture and the tribulation. During that age, during this age, it's the church during the tribulation. Daniel's 70th week, it's the Jews and the 144,000 in particular. Um, Who will be representing God on earth during that time? So my answer is, first of all, we need to distinguish between dispensations and time in general. So these, these are the different dispensations that God has uh, you know, sort of unveiled in Scripture in terms of different stewardships uh, throughout time. But we need to understand that there's not a hard line of demarcation between them. It's not like God's up there with a stopwatch and says, okay, age one ends, boom, age two starts. There's always a little overlap. It's, it's a general transition. And so in each age, there is a representative group. It was Adam and Eve, then it was Noah, then it was Abraham, then it was the children of Israel. Today, it's the church. Ultimately, it will be Christ uh, in the kingdom. But that's a different question from, are there always believers on earth? Is there always a remnant, the remnant principle? So going back to the question, after the rapture, in that split second after the rapture, there will be not a single believer on earth because they've all been caught up to meet the Lord in the air, right? But very quickly, we can assume that some of those left behind will remember the gospel they already heard and now believe it or perhaps stumble upon the gospel. Maybe they'll find a gospel track or maybe they'll open their Bible or The gospel is pervasive. I mean, it's everywhere, right? I mean, there are certainly unreached people groups and unreached regions of the world, but let's face it, the gospel's everywhere. So they may, very quickly after the rapture, you'll see people believe the gospel and get saved. And so there will be a remnant of time in that gap so that by the time the Antichrist signs the peace treaty, there will already be some believers on earth. And it's possible even that during that gap of time, that's when the 144,000 actually get saved because the book of Revelation chapter 7 doesn't tell us when they get saved. It just tells us that God marks them out supernaturally so that they're protected from the Antichrist and they become the missionaries that spread the gospel for seven years. So who knows? I'm totally speculating, but it's quite possible that that's when they get saved sometime during that gap of time so that they're standing at the ready and God says, okay, you're my group. I'm protecting you with a seal and now you go out and spread the gospel. But, so yes, there will always be believers. I mean, for a period of time after the rapture, maybe it's five minutes, I don't know, there will be no believers, but very quickly people will begin to get saved. Make sense? And then the other question, which I thought was really good, it was not an eschatological question, but this person says, Christ tells us to pray for leaders, pray for persecutors, right? He does, you know. Pray for those who persecute you. So, how do I pray for the evil elites? <laughs> That's a convicting question. Uh, the Luciferian elites, you know, the ones that are behind the scenes pulling the strings and helping and aiding and abetting Satan and ushering in the new world order. Well, the only thing that comes to my mind would be imprecatory prayers that we see in Psalms. And I do believe that it's acceptable today to pray those kinds of prayers. But basically an imprecatory prayer is when you ask god to judge evil to to bring down his justice upon evildoers, whether that's evil kings evil whatever and 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 strike them down and so that's what we should pray that you know lord we know your timetable is sovereign we know the luciferians are rapidly heading toward the end game but we know they don't get to it's not their say you have the ultimate say and If God's ready to usher in the end times and call the church home and let it play out and usher in ultimately the final kingdom with Christ on the throne, it's going to happen. But we also know from 2 Peter 3.9 that he's not willing that any should perish. He wants to allow time for people to come to faith. And so he's fully capable of thwarting the plans of these evildoers. Psalm 2 tells us he laughs when they sit there thinking they're going to throw off his yoke and throw off his uh, leadership. So... I think it's perfectly acceptable to pray, Lord, strike them down, you know. It reminds me of uh, something the late Jerry Falwell said. I'm not a fan of Jerry Falwell's necessarily. I didn't agree with everything he said, but this was a funny quote. I may have mentioned it before, but I was at a conference just attending, not speaking, and he was one of the speakers, and it was a banquet. And so during the banquet, before he got up to speak, he left the, the big banquet room, went out in the hall, and he did an interview, a live feed interview on CNN. It was right after 9/11, and so they were. It's a lot of talk about Osama bin Laden, and so they had. It was one of those split screens. I saw this later, where they had different talking heads up there. And Falwell was the evangelical Christian perspective, you know, and uh, and so he came back in after that interview, and as he gave his speech to the banquet, he explained how it had gone and what he had said, and he said, the 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 anchor on the news program had turned to him and said, "Well, you're a Christian, so you think." even Saddam Hussein, or I mean, uh, Osama bin Laden could be saved. And Falwell said he told them, well, yes, sir, I do. I do believe anybody can be saved. And, uh, and in fact, if I got the chance to meet Osama bin Laden, I'd share the gospel with him, lead him to Christ, and then I'd shoot him. <laughs> you know, cl- classic Falwell, you know, Falwell language, right? Yeah, that's just the way Falwell was. He told it like it was. So, But the point is, evil people will be judged and deserve to be judged. And so uh, I think it's perfectly fine to pray uh, pray for that. So any other, I know we're out of time, but any other quick question or burning question that you were hoping to get to ask? Yeah. In 1 uh, Corinthians seven, it says, uh, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord
1: Jesus Christ. I just heard a, a gentleman making a lot of the article, and I thought maybe you'd have some insight in when we talk about the coming of the lord he was saying well if there's the coming then there can't be two but i feel like that's is that that's just being a
0: little bit too obsessive about the article right yeah now. absolutely so the comment is first corinthians 1 7 a reference to the coming or the revelation of our lord jesus christ and i don't have my greek text in front of me so i'm just going to assume that it does have the definite article Sometimes in English they act like it does and it might not. But let's assume it does. I assume that whoever was commenting on that probably knows that. But certainly the presence of a definite article doesn't prove anything. You know, I could say, hand me the microphone. And that doesn't mean that's the only microphone microphone on earth, right? (laughs) Right? I just mean that one, right? So context determines meaning, Uh, the revelation, the appearing of Christ can refer to the appearing of him in the clouds to meet the church or ultimately his appearing to come uh, to uh, all the way to earth and set up the kingdom. Let's see if someone texted me. So, okay. All right, so I just want to make sure there wasn't a question from someone who has my cell number. Yes?
1: Um, quick one. I was just thinking about what you were talking about about imprecatory prayer and all. What is your feeling about um, you know how Dietrich
0: Bonhoeffer was part of the underground resistance to kill Hitler? Yeah. You know, so from a Christian perspective, I mean not that I'm saying I'm part of a group to kill, you know, Klaus Schwab.
1: Yeah. But. <laughs> but. if you are, let me know. I'd like to apply for membership. But but I mean how,
0: how, do you, how does a Christian view that? You know? So the I mean, question is about Bonhoeffer being part of an underground group trying to kill Hitler and how do you reconcile that with biblical teaching? I don't have a problem reconciling it at all. So the Bible certainly teaches self-defense. It teaches that, we have, that human life is sacred. In fact, the sanctity of life is what underlies the institution of capital punishment in Genesis. It's because life is so valuable that if someone takes someone's life, they have to give up their life, right? So absolutely, we ought to... To me, that's like, you know... And I know where you're coming from because there are a lot of people who somehow say, oh, that's not Christian or whatever. Um, but it's like saying when a raging murderer comes knocking at your door you can't defend yourself right i mean that's just absurd so absolutely there's some very evil people out there that are involved in a massive eugenics program they're trying to kill most people especially christians they hate and they are out there doing things like the spraying stuff in the air and injecting people with gene editing you know dangerous bio injections and 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 absolutely if given the opportunity we should stop it so uh i don't have a problem with that at all i know i'm going to get a lot of hate mail and a lot of people from that but you know because there's a whole other group out there that says we just leave it in god's hands it's all god's sovereignty Mm -hmm. i even talked to someone sometime that said that any time you say something wrong something that you know to be inaccurate that's a lie and so that if a rapist is on the loose comes to your door and you've got your wife hiding in the closet and the rapist says to you holding a gun is your wife hiding in the closet, and you say no that you're morally sinning, by you know you should just lead him right to her. That's just absurd. So lie a lie morally is something that depends on the motive, right? If if you know if you're having a surprise party for someone, that's not a sin because you deceived them. That's not deception, right? So it has to do with motive, and I've talked about that elsewhere. But let's go here first, and then we'll come back over here to Sally. Yeah, no, I, w- I would look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, um, and then if you'll email me, I'll kind of come up with some others and send them to you. Yeah, Sally. Um, as much as I
1: want the Russian people to turn against Putin, I have prayed for him to be safe because of the influence he could
0: have on him. Yeah, perfect. sure. And how things could change. Yeah, so Sally pointed out, as much as we want you know, Putin out of power we pray for him that he'll be saved and that's different from you know putting a stop to murderous evildoers that's a separate issue we, we want everybody to be saved the way the lord wants everybody to but be saved to sure but i mean like it goes back to my jerry falwell you know humorous anecdote right so there's a distinction you can pray for god to to put a stop to evil and judge evildoers and pray for their salvation at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive, right? I mean, if a guy's coming at you wanting to murder you, you don't say, hey, before you do, can we stop and pray? You know, if you die today, would you spend eternity? I mean, he's going to say, I don't know and I don't care, but you're about to die today. I mean, so there's a, it's, a, it's mutually exclusive. We absolutely should pray for the salvation of everyone. And yes, if God... Uh, if the spirit of God breaks through and they trust Christ, then that changes everything. But that's not the only thing we should do, right? That's not the only. Jesus, you know, we see the examples in inspired Scripture of praying imprecatory prayers of judgment and demise upon evildoers, and and I think that's perfectly biblical. So. All right. Well, let's uh, stop there. Great discussion. We'll do this again, I promise. But. Uh, Let's take a break for those of you uh, watching by live stream we'll come back together approximately around 10:30 maybe 10:25 10:35 just kind of depends on how the service flow goes but uh, that's mountain time so approximately 30 to you know 35 to 45 minutes from now. All right, thank you guys. God bless.